been awash in countdowns to impending natural disasters, devastating hurricanes, monsoon flooding, wildfires. And then other tragedies strike so suddenly, wildfires, earthquakes in Mexico, the images of suffering, of heroism, of coping, cling to us, cling to me throughout the day and night. Especially confounding are the pictures of the fragile and vulnerable trapped by circumstances. The nursing home residents sitting unbelievably waist deep in water, in wheelchairs and at tables as if Nothing is different. The limp children being pulled out of impossible rubble of former buildings and schools. How can we help when we're so far away? How can I be so lucky to have a roof over my head, intact walls, dry floors, streets, Flowers blooming, trees upright, skies blue, sun shining. It feels unreal. It seems unfairly glorious. Is there a message or meaning in nature's violence and capriciousness? You know, if we were religious people moved by a central figure controlling us and controlling nature, we might be attributing these destructive events to long-sought biblical predictions. Finally, the stars are aligned. The punishing or cleansing predictions foretold are coming true. except we are not those religious people. While it's human nature to try and connect the dots and make meaning of events, we're not taken by grand narratives. We don't take them literally. We're not prone to certainty. Certainty that these are the end times or God is speaking to us as seductive as having answers like that might be. Our insistence is on both science and humility as one theological stance, ensuring that we're always balancing the tension between asking, how and why did this happen? and accepting our always limited human understanding. What am I not seeing or understanding here? We can never know everything. Our collective knowledge and wisdom gets us very far, very far. While nature and the cosmos contain infinite variables that keep forces hidden, Paying close attention to nature 
reinforces these conflicting worldviews. Humans are unique, have skills and intelligence other creatures don't seem to have, and we are a tiny part of this natural world whose rules apply equally to us as they do to the shifting plate tectonics under Mexico or the warming seas of the Atlantic. We are all part of that. A book I saw in every store and museum shop I entered this summer is The Hidden Life of Trees. What they feel, how they communicate. Each time I spotted it, I'd pick it up, read a little further, and then go, okay, I have enough books, I'm not going to buy it, and I'd put it back every time. I nobly resisted that impulse. Didn't want to add to my toppling stack of books already until I got home and I was still thinking about what I'd read and wondering what I hadn't read. The premise of the book and the science kept drawing me in. So finally, once I was home, I ordered it. (laughs) It spoke to me about this specific location we are in, Hope Hill, surrounded by these trees. The author, Peter Wollaben, is a German forestry official, but he left that work as he came to understand the limitations of thinking about a forest only as a source of lumber. His work was more like being on a cattle yard and a slaughterhouse. It distorted nature's wisdom, creating pain and waste for those under his care. When he was a forester, he only cared about the trees with straight trunks because they could then become the best planks. But the visitors who came to that forest were enchanted by the crooked ones and the gnarled ones. You know, the ones without much commercial value. Let me read his words. I learned to pay attention to more than just the quality of tree trunks. I began to notice bizarre root shapes, peculiar growth patterns, and the mossy cushions on bark. Life as a forester became exciting once again. Every day in the forest was a a day of discovery. This led me to unusual ways of managing the forest. When you know that trees experience pain and have memories, and that tree parents live together with their children then you can no longer just chop them down and disrupt their lives with large machines. Machines have been banned from the forest for a couple of decades now, where he is in Germany. And if a few individual trees need to be harvested from time to time, the work is done with care by foresters using horses instead. A healthier Perhaps you could even say happier 
forest is considerably more productive. And that means it's more profitable. Wollenben makes his case, backed by science, that trees in forests have produced, developed strategies to share nutrients, to signal to each other, and to respond chemically to animals and insect invasions. He likens these responses to woody versions of feeling, sharing, communicating, loving, even. They are species-specific. Describing it to you all now sounds fantastical, science fiction, even a tree-hugger's dream. Except his work is grounded in current ongoing research. There are scientists on the ground working in his forests and others in Germany. Trees have complex lives sophisticated chemical responses that ensure the life not only of each tree but the whole community of trees the forest paying attention to those secrets of trees such as becoming acquainted with our specific Hope Hill forest unlocks information for our well-being Our natural surroundings are not simply a metaphor for life. They offer concrete evidence for understanding our place in this natural world. We are not above nature, destined to merely have dominion over the earth. Rather, we are deeply embedded in and moved by all the seen and unseen forces shaping our lives moods, actions, and thoughts. You know, the solar eclipse moved through our lives this past week. Fall is now officially here. Thank you, Annie. We've crossed over a balance of night and day. Hours of sunlight are now growing shorter as darkness increases. How many here dread how the sun rises later and sets earlier? Feel a lingering sadness? Do you feel an impending sorrow or doom? Even though, even though fall is, is invigorating and beautiful and cooler and spectacular. Obviously, the trees are responding to this turning of the seasons. They've evolved ways to survive in the waning sunlight and fierce freezing cold. Since we witness this display annually, we take for granted the fact that we still don't fully understand all the cues of light and temperature to which a tree responds. Trees, in effect, have mechanisms that allow them to count the hours of the day. In essence, they have a memory and they keep time. In the spring, beech trees don't start growing until it's light for at least 13 hours a day. How do they know that? I don't. 
most of the deciduous trees on our hill quit producing chlorophyll long ago, months ago, midsummer. They have this ancient sense of time. They've been anticipating the changes in light and temperature. And this fall equinox, this decreasing available sunlight, signal other changes so they'll start closing off valves, essentially, to each leaf on each branch. The green chlorophyll dies and the vivid colors by the remaining orange and yellow carotenoids and the red anthocyanins begin to show up. And then after this display, the nutrient is fully shut off and the leaf falls. But the tree knows how to do this. So why am I going on and on about the basics of trees and the basic moves of trees that we all know? What's the value of talking about a tree's response, a whole forest response to the season? Well, we come together each Sunday morning to make sense of current events and our lives together. Where's the outrage at injustices, the imperative to rejuvenate and set right by paying attention to trees? Like a forest of trees, we are individuals working to thrive. Like trees, we survive best. Thanks, Joe Monroe, for your sermon earlier at the adult forum. Like trees, we survive best when we are deeply held in community, when we have a we. Just as diseased or broken trees in a forest, are, they're fed underground by this invaluable tangle of roots and also fungi. Our social mesh of relationships serve the exact same purpose. We support, inform, feed, and care for each other. Like forests, we depend on many just like us and with even more who are not just like us. We are not so different from the trees. Our personal decisions and corporate actions are best, best, when informed by the unshakable wisdom and data from nature. One reason we fail to fully understand forests is that they live on this completely different time scale from us. You know the oldest trees on earth, a spruce in Sweden, is more than 9,500 years old. We tend to forget, caught up in the immediacy of our lives, the whooshing pace of news or personal events, that we too are ancient. The science world was recently stunned by the redating of a human fossil from Morocco, not Africa, Morocco, and it's a homo sapien over 300,000 years old. So we share this ancient DNA 
and survival strategies that operate at the same leisurely pace as our forests and trees. While we prefer to think of ourselves as masters of our fate, rational thinkers, fully able to control ourselves and our surroundings, when we think this way solely, we mistakenly indulge in a, in a delusion, an idolatry of our rational mind. Let me be clear here. I am not dismissing the miracle of our intellect. I am not. Far from it. I'm not on a project to refuse the glorious output of human problem-solving abilities or our fertile imaginations. I'm not rejecting our capacity to create ethical and moral societies or religious traditions. Instead, I'm bringing our attention back to all the sources of information driving us. Many we discount at our peril. We are still an embodied species. We live in a mass of cells driven by ancient as well as immediate impulses. Like the trees, our biological systems respond to the changing sunlight, the length of the day, the cooler weather, our moods, thought patterns, who wants pumpkin spice, nutritional needs, actions and choices are driven by forces outside of ourselves. And it puts us in sync with the world. When we dismiss it, we are dismissing the world. We are not separate. We are we. We are us. We are they. When we ignore the wisdom of the seasons, the lessons of nature, we act out of ignorance. We continue to be surprised by the ferocity of nature because we haven't been paying close enough attention. We allow the immediacy and political factors propel how buildings are built, where neighborhoods are placed, and how we live. How we transport ourselves, what we cut down, what we cement over. We ignore climate change and cycles. We ignore science as well as our deeply established cellular responses. Our seemingly rational decision-making accumulates into harmful policies and destructive situations because it's missing vital sources of data. Nature. We ignore what it means to usher in new birth. We ignore the lessons of saying goodbye, of dying well, we ignore the lessons of cooperation. We fear diversity. There is no forest that is a single species of trees. We resist change and cycles. So back in 1995, at our annual gathering of Unitarian Universalists, there was this growing movement that insisted in formally including into our religious tradition the lessons of nature and the ancient wisdom of cultures grounded in our seasons. 
It made perfect sense, except the word used in the resolution was pagan, a complex and loaded term. It stood for too many things. It had been a derogatory label dividing the Christian world from every other tradition. Derogatory, dismissive. And thousands had been killed when named pagan. You know, pagan just means a country person. comes from the Latin root pagus, which is about marking off a, a, a government district. So the General Assembly debate to include pagan traditions as our sixth religious source grew heated, to put it mildly. So the, gather is, the gathering is looking for a way to bring forward this ancient wisdom as a native corrective to the imbalance of our reliance on technology and science and patriarchy. And they're fighting as only we can fight. <laughs> And the Reverend Paul Leroux stands up to the microphone and proposed that what they're really discussing are earth-centered traditions. They seek to include the collective wisdom of all the religions and rituals and science who take into account the turning of the wheel of seasons, who notice the ancient cycles of change, who value the integration of humanity back into its rightful place of animals, plants, the ground, the sky, from which we spring and live. Just that small word change and the proposal passes by a landslide. Competition is not really a survival strategy that nature uses solely. Cooperation is underplayed and misunderstood in Darwin's theories of evolution. Earth-centered traditions demand we look again at the lessons nature has to teach us. We must pay closer attention to all of our surroundings, correct our mistakes. If you think the earth-centered traditions in our rich bag of religious wisdom are the more lightweight intellectually ones than all the others, then you are profoundly, profoundly mistaken. Our survival as a religion, as a species, as a planet, insists, insists we consider the natural forces shaping our world. There is a pagan in all of us, all of us. Our sixth source reads, we live out our principles within a living tradition of wisdom and spirituality. Based on the spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. It positions our intellectual abilities fully into our bodies, swayed by nature and the seasons. It balances our cool, rational tactics 
with the wild, cyclical wisdoms of ancient survival. May it be so. We give away our plate every single Sunday, and we are one with the cats. <laughs>